23 through 24, English Standard Version, page 1000. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. It was another balmy evening in the lower Hudson River Valley. The kids had been tucked into their bed for the night, and now it was mommy time. After dealing with two toddlers for a day, I needed some peace and quiet. Jim and I were living in a town bordering a little neighborhood that was uh, built up on the Hudson Highlands. There were these beautiful older homes, and through the neighborhood, there was this street lined with mature older trees. You could walk through that road, and down beside you was the majestic Hudson River. It was calm, it was peaceful, it was quiet, it was the great place to get away. I used to love to go walking there in the evening. As I walked, I would often lift my heart in prayer because it was just such an inspirational place to walk. You see, for about a year now, I had been struggling with the proverbial thorn in my flesh, similar to what Paul describes, and I had asked God every which way I knew to take this thorn from me, but nothing. So tonight again, as I walked, I lifted my heart in prayer. Lord, you are God. You are my God. Lord, you're creator of the universe. You own these trees, you own these homes, you own the river. Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. My request is nothing to you. God, just throw me a token miracle. Just help me. But again, silence. The subject I'm speaking on today is that of prayer. And I don't come before you as an expert. I just come before you as someone else who struggled in prayer. And if I was a betting woman, I would bet that all of us here have at some point in our lives struggled in prayer. Maybe even some of us are struggling now. Sometimes in prayer, we hear God's silence. When I think of someone in the Bible who struggled in silence, I think of David. Now, David chronicled his experiences in the book of Psalms, so we can all go back and read about his experiences. He was very vulnerable and open. He complained and whined to God. He prayed, Lord, why are these people after my life? He missed his family. He missed his home. He was sick and he was tired. And he put all of that out there for others to see. But if you read through the Psalms, you don't often hear God coming back to David with an answer or with a response. What we do see in the Psalms is that David often resolves this silence from God by saying, by acknowledging that God is. God is Lord, God is the master of the universe, and even in silence, God is there with him. The second experience I'd like to pray about, or talk about in prayer, is that of God of the impossible. Now, these are the stories we read about or hear about as kids. These are the Uncle Arthur bedtime stories where dad loses his car keys and they're miraculously found. The family pet wanders away and is suddenly returned. Um, the farmer sees the tornado coming at his field, so he prays and the tornado goes around his, his uh, boundary line of his field. 
These are the mission stories of some faraway country where the Bushmen are converted from cannibalism to Christianity. These are great stories. But honestly, how often is that our story? I think of the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Israel had sunk so deeply into idolatry, Elijah thought he was the only prophet of God left in all of Israel. And so he calls for a God showdown. He gets together the prophets of Baal, and he comes as the prophet of God. Each side builds an altar. Each of them puts a sacrifice on the altar. And the deal is that whoever answers by fire first, he's the true God. We all know how that story ends. God shows up in an amazing and impossible way. It's undeniable who's the real God. So sometimes we experience the God of the impossible. The third experience I'd like to talk about is submission. And I look no further than the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane for this one. I think about Jesus. It was Thursday night. The disciples and him had just finished celebrating the Feast of Passover. Jesus sent out Judas to do his dirty deed. Then the 11 remaining disciples go across the Kidron Valley with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people think that this was a common place that they went to spend the evening. When they get to the garden, Jesus leaves eight of the disciples and takes his three closest pals, and they go just a little ways further. There Jesus tells them, please, stay awake and pray with me for a while. Then Jesus removes himself a little farther, where he begins this epic struggle with God. Now, we don't know the posture of prayer Jesus used. We don't know how long he was in prayer. We don't know what he said. There's one little piece of his prayer that remains to us, and that's the part where he prays, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Jesus was tired. He knew the sands in the hourglass of his life were running low. He was probably discouraged. One of his 12 closest friends was about to betray him or had betrayed him already. He doesn't want eternal separation from his father. So he asks God for a plan B or C or D. After a while, he comes back to the disciples, these pals of his, and finds that they've succumbed to sleep. Now, I'm sure I would have done the same. You sit me down and I fall right asleep. So you can't fault them for falling asleep. But he rouses them, and again he tells them, stay awake and pray with me for a little while. You don't know what's about to happen. Then again, Jesus goes off and continues this tortuous journey with God. We don't know how long he's there, but the part of prayer that's recorded this time shows that there's come a change. This time, Jesus prays, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus has come to the point in his mission where he has fully submitted to the Father's will. Now we know Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. You can't get far in any of the Gospels without finding that Jesus went away to pray or Jesus went to the mountain to pray. There's a lot of prayer that happened in Jesus' life. And I can't help but wonder, did prayer change Jesus' outlook on his life or his mission? 
Did Jesus spend so much time with his heavenly father that he instinctively knew how to relate to people and experiences as he encountered them on a day-by-day basis? Jesus fortified his life with prayer. And thank goodness he did. Imagine had he up and walked away from his mission. In full submission to the Father's will, he purchased our salvation. The fourth experience I'd like to talk about is that of tension. Tension happens when one plus two doesn't necessarily equal three. C.S. Lewis has this story. One day he was planning a trip to London, and so in preparation for his trip, he decided to go to get his hair cut. But as he sat down and opened his morning mail, it became apparent that he didn't need to go to London anymore, so he decided, eh, I'm going to nix the haircut too. But there began a little voice in the back of his head. Go and get it cut. Get it cut anyway. Just go and get it cut. And he couldn't rest until he gave in to that urge to go get the haircut. Now, his barber happened to be another Christian gentleman whom Lewis and his brother had been able to help from time to time. And when Lewis walked into the barber shop, his barber comes at him and greets him and says, I'm so glad you're here today. I've been praying that you would show up. So was Lewis's action an answer to this gentleman's prayer? Was it an accident? Was it coincidence? Can we change God's will with our prayers? Can we change the course of history? When I think of tension in the Bible, I think of the story of Job, and I think you have to be a little melancholic to like that book, but it's one of my favorites. I've loved reading it. Here you have Job. He's the man that all of us wishes we were. He's got money, influence, friends, beautiful family that are close to home. He's got everything, but in an instant, that's all totally taken away from him. First, he loses all his possessions. Then all 10 of his children are killed in a freak accident. If that weren't enough, his body is covered with boils or sores. And because of that infection, the skin infection, he has to be isolated from the community at large. So he goes away, and we see Job sitting in the dirt, trying to soothe his skin with ash. Along comes Mrs. Job, and she tells him, just curse God and die. Now, it's real easy to point the finger at her and say, what was she thinking? But remember, she had also lost her possessions, her family, and in essence, her husband. I didn't really realize that till I was preparing for this talk, and I've always been so judgmental at her, but honestly, we might feel that way too. Anyhow, something in the back of Job's head won't let him take that step. So he continues to sit there in his solitude. Along comes his three well-meaning friends. And they try to help Job figure out what it is he had done to incur the wrath of God. Remember back then, if you had an illness or something bad happened to you, it was because you had done something to upset God. And the book of Job is their dialogue back and forth. These three well-meaning, well-intentioned guys and this poor Job that's suffering. At the end of the book, God shows up. 
And God's got some really tough words for Job. He says to Job, Job, were you there when I created the earth? Job, did you see me tell the water you can go this far and then it stops? Job, do you know where I store the rain or the hail? And then Job gets it. He realizes here is God, God of the universe, and here is Job. God's mind is so much bigger than our little minds. And sometimes the one plus two doesn't equal three. So in prayer, sometimes we have tension. And honestly, that tension may never be resolved till we get to heaven. My fifth and final um, ex- uh, experience in prayer is that of trust. And to me, this is the most important one. Trust comes as we build relationship with someone. As you spend time with a person, as you dialogue with them, as you get to know their heart, that trust relationship is formed. Now, I too am a nurse. I've been a nurse for over 30 years. Most of that time, I've specialized in cardiology, especially cardiac electrophysiology. I used to work back in New York in a cath lab that was very busy where we did diagnostic and interventional procedures on uh, patients as young as one day, as old as you name it. I used to love dealing with the kids because they were so small, so innocent, and their anomalies were so fascinating. Whenever we had a baby come into the lab, we'd always have the family come into the procedure room, hand off the child to the nurses and the doctors that would be taking care of their child, and then one of us would walk them back down to the waiting room. Now, I wasn't a mom yet, But I remember thinking, how in the world do these people leave their little tiny baby in the hands of strangers? How do they trust us? They had to know that because of our affiliation with a reputable institution, because of our credentials, that we would return their child safely back to them at the end of the procedure. Now, I was on the flip side of trust back in the winter of 2004 and 5. Jim and I, we were getting ready to move out here to Colorado. Jim was actually out here securing a home for us and enrolling Cassie in first grade. Oh my goodness, where does time go? And the kids and I were back in New York. I was finishing my last couple weeks of work. Thursday night, excuse me, Alex started getting sick. He started running a temp. And like any good nurse mom, I'm like, just a little Tylenol, he'll be fine. But by Sunday evening, it was very clear Alex was not fine. He had this enormous bulge on his neck. His hands and his feet and his belly were splotchy and red, and the fever just wouldn't go away. Monday morning, 7 a.m., I'm at the pediatrician's office, both kids in tow. They bring us into the exam room. We sit down. Alex is on my lap. His doctor takes a look at him, and she's like, I'm going to go get Dr. Lester. Now, Dr. Lester was the senior partner in the practice. The two of them come back. They sit there. They examine. They chat amongst themselves. And then they turn to me and say, you need to get to the ER, and you need to go there now. Don't go home. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Go straight to the ER. Alex has Kawasaki's disease. Now, here's the really crazy thing. Being a cath lab nurse, 
in the past six weeks or so, I had seen three patients who had the results of untreated Kawasaki's disease. What can happen if you don't treat it or don't treat it soon enough, you can get coronary aneurysms. And the images of these people's angiograms were burned in my head. And as I'm looking at my little boy, all as I could think is, he could have a heart attack. And he wasn't even five yet. So off we ran to the ER. I had no problem trusting the guys in New York. I knew them, I worked with them, I was friends with the um, chief interventional pediat pediatric cardiologist. But remember, we're moving to, New to Colorado in two weeks. I didn't know a soul here. And Fort Collins has no pediatric cardiologist. So that was a very stressful time. And it's really hard to trust when it's your own child. Jim and I are again facing a trust issue as we send our precious daughter off to college. I might get teary here. Cassie's never lived outside of the home and we're getting ready to send her off to Walla Walla or now it's maybe Union. Pray for her as she makes the choice. Either one, they're like a million miles away from home. What if she gets to school and decides to disown her crazy family? What if she decides to sleep through her classes? What if she decides to thumb her nose at God? I have to trust that my wonderful daughter is more important to God than she is to me. God has her in his hand. So sometimes in prayer, we, have, we hear the deafening roar of silence. Sometimes in prayer, we're wowed by the impossible. In prayer, we learn submission to God's will. But there may be a tension that's not resolved until we're in heaven. But if you hear nothing more that I've said today, please remember this. As we strengthen our relationship through our Heavenly Father, by spending time in prayer with him, we learn to trust our most awesome Heavenly Father. Lord, teach us to pray.